Psychology Nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, psychologist and anger researcher and host of Psychology and Stuff, and we have a tele... No, we don't. We have teletherapy (laughs) on tap for today and an amazing guest to talk about it with. But first... I want to introduce my co-host. She's a social ecologist and the incoming chair of the psychology program here at UW-Green Bay. It's Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungis. Hello. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I am great. So I have a question for you before we begin. So I was doing some research for our rapid research review that we do uh, later in the episode. So stay tuned for that. And the researcher that I'm reading about was called in, in an article... A TED Talk sensation. Ooh. And so I'm wondering, because you you have, you are maybe a TED Talk sensation Ooh. yourself, Ryan. <laughs> I'm wondering, is that like the same thing as saying like you're a YouTube sensation, so, like David Dobrik or something? Like I do not know who that is. Sorry, wow. so I'm not cool. Okay, yeah. You, <laughs> the look, you, I wish everyone could see the look that Georgina just gave me for not know, knowing David Dolbrick. Dobrik. Dobrik. Yes. How about okay. like a uh, social media influencer like Kylie Jenner? Oh, that one I know. Yay. Okay. Thank goodness. I So I don't, uh, I, I'm curious now what it takes to be a sensation. Is that the word sensation? Yes, a t- sensation. Like is it the nerdy academic version of like uh, a social media influencer. Probably, but I bet I don't qualify. I bet you have to have a certain number of views or uh, maybe a certain number, because some people have multiple TED Talks. Mm-hmm. I don't have either of those things. Wow. Well, you so, better start working on it I will so push that it, I yeah. can refer to you. Like, I'll do yeah. one of these intros, and I'll be like, and our TED Talk sensation, yes. Ryan Merton. Okay, so to make that happen, listeners, go watch the TED Talk. There you go. <laughs> gotta get Shameless even, plug yep, right Even there. if you've already seen it, it's my name, Ryan Martin, and uh, it's on anger. So if you search for those two things, you will most certainly find it. Let's so. turn him into a TED yes. Talk sensation. That, that would be great. The pinnacle so. of nerdiness. You know what? Watch it a couple times if you want. So yeah. they, they showed it at an event I was at. And part of me was like, don't do this. Just tell everybody to go watch it on their own. So I get all the views, right? Not the not the one view. So my kids asked me this question. Uh-oh. Do you have to watch it the whole thing? <laughs> or can you just like open it and does that count as a view i think you can just open it and that counts as a view though i suspect it they keep track of because youtube keeps track of how long people watch things so just let it play and leave the room that would be my advice if you really if you're like me and you can't stand the sound of my voice one (laughs) why are you listening to this podcast But but two um you should most certainly just leave the room or put it on mute just let it play in the background right yes that seems reasonable that, that seems very reasonable. I think my kids were wanting to help you yeah. um, become a, sen- a TED Talk sensation. So they were asking, like, did they actually yeah. have to listen to your TED Talk? Or could they <laughs> no. just, like, open it and yeah. close it and be done? They should share it with their friends. Oh, well, there you go. That's the key. Go. Then they don't have to watch it themselves. They can wish that upon their... There you go. Yeah. Tell them it's like the ring, that if they, <laughs> that if they don't watch it till the end, they die in nine days. <laughs> I will, I will be sure to share that information. Thanks for clarifying that. I just, I, it was. It I don't was know that really I did clarify funny. anything. Oh, yeah, you did. I did. You okay. are on your way. 
my uh, friend. I'm super excited about it. Thank you <laughs> very, very much. So, uh, and related to all of this, I want to use this as an opportunity to uh, talk about Facebook and Twitter. Uh, they can find us at Psych and Stuff on both Facebook and Twitter. They should also, um, that's a good place to go, like, suggest an episode. You can send us a message and say, hey, I want you to talk about whatever, and we'll do it. So Absolutely. Um, we have tackled episodes in the past that uh, people have brought up. So, um, yeah, if you want us to cover something, we'll find, even if we don't have access to a guest like we do today, we'll find someone who can uh, talk about it. So speaking of our guest, she Ooh. is a regular on Psych and Stuff. Most recently, she talked with us about effectiveness and of psychotherapy. She's a counseling psychologist who teaches courses in counseling and psychotherapy and multicultural counseling. It's Dr. Chris Vespia. Thank you for having me yes. back. How's I, it I, going? It's going okay. Um, I'm a little overwhelmed right now. I'm a little intimidated. Here oh. I am with a TED Talk sensation, <laughs> yes. with an incoming chair. With a, you know, you, you've done all your fancy so, banter. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to be the letdown. At no, this point. you've got the so. super awesome uh, job next year, the Success Center. Right? You're the I incoming do. Success Center director. Yes. I don't. I don't know that we've shared that with uh, with the listening oh. audience. Well, now uh, but now we have. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, cat's out of the stuff. bag right yeah. there. I know. I mean, so. We're still talking about a few months away. So, but but yeah, we're we in, are, the, in the fall. I yeah. was maybe going to hide that until we'd recruited some interns and then oh. spring it on them as a surprise. <laughs> that's, in the, yep. you know, that's a great I mean, plan, actually. I, yeah, so but, now this is going to help you recruit interns. Now. I, I hope so. Yeah, yes, because I'm actually I'm very excited about that. Um, it's a project that's near and dear to my heart, and particularly just given my interest in career and advising and all those sorts of things. Yep, it's a super important job that you are perfect for. So yeah, everything you. works out great. Awesome. A student success sensation. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, there's like something it. to live up to. There's a, there's a lot of S's in that. Uh, there, there that was are. perfect. I like that alliteration. I'm nice just going to use that from now on. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> um, all right, so we are here to talk a little bit about something that I know very, very little about, mm-hmm. um, because when I went to school, back when I was your age, I don't okay. know, when I was, <laughs> it was not really a thing that got a lot yeah. of attention, but it is certainly, beca- well, I shouldn't say that, it, it was uh, teletherapy, which is the, the topic uh, today, was a thing that I think people were in the very early stages of discussing, mm-hmm. and me being... Uh, uh, curmudgeon early uh, <laughs> for, I um, I sort of blew it off thinking like well it's not a good idea and it's probably not going to happen but I was obviously wrong because it seems to be happening so I want to I guess start with like what is teletherapy okay well you know th- that's a good question and right. and I, yeah, I, I always like to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> I, I also would like to just say that when Dr. Martin says that he is a curmudgeon, mm-hmm. I remember the days when I first knew you, when it was a point of pride yes. to you that you had the most outdated <laughs> cell phone that you never checked yes. in the world, and now you mock <laughs> others <laughs> for the same behavior. It is true. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, and you are now the, the king of social media. So wow. it's And yeah. a TED Talk since I know. <laughs> wow, look at all these titles he's yeah. getting today. Georgina, we got to work on some for you. Yeah. Too. No, so I'm, I'm good to fly under this radar right here. Uh, but I think you are exactly right in the sense that when you and I were in graduate school, which was about the same time, mm-hmm. um, yes, I realized the it was a little ages. earlier yeah. for me. Yeah, and it was before electricity, so that yeah. also made the whole teletherapy thing a little little difficult. Right. Um, but it, it actually was about the time when this was starting to get some serious exploration. So it dates back 
20, 25 years okay. um, in a serious way, and really started with the military, by oh. and large, uh, because they were trying to reach people in need of mental health care who might be deployed to a remote location, maybe they're oh. on a submarine, maybe they're, right, yeah. and you've got to find some sort of way to provide services for those individuals if, um, if they're not readily available. Telehealth is really kind of an umbrella term that can be used to talk about a whole lot of things, many of which I'm not going to talk about today. <laughs> um, but telehealth can also include telemedicine, so providing physical health care um, via some sort of remote technology. Mm -hmm. And that, too, um, was you know probably to some extent the military, but also used uh, with folks in rural areas who didn't have mm -hmm. access to certain kinds of specialists and whatnot to make that a possibility and closed circuit TV was one of the first ways that hmm. they that they did that. So you've got telehealth, you've got telemedicine, um, telepsychiatry has really taken hmm. off in recent years in large part because of the shortage of psychiatrists, particularly in rural areas, but just in general, the shortage of psychiatrists um, and being able to um, have those services more broadly available. And then you have teletherapy, which specifically refers to telemental health kinds of services, non-psychiatric okay. sorts of mental health services. So that could be provided by counselors, social workers, psychologists, hmm. you name it. So I just made that really, really broad. No. How can I help? <laughs> that, that so who, so you, you hinted at a couple of these things, but... I guess, why do it? You know, I mean, one, we got the rural piece that you mentioned. Sure. What are some of the other reasons why this has become, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, more common than it was when, when it, we sure. started out? Yeah, uh, a couple of reasons. Access, I think, is by far the, the greatest, most compelling reason to do it. So you have people in rural areas. You've got people um, who, because of physical disabilities or other reasons, may not be able to easily um, come to a therapist's mm -hmm. office. Um, you might have individuals who are in nursing homes or other sorts of you know, facilities that makes it difficult to provide those in-person services, um, you know, any variety of, of reasons. And actually, Georgina, you were one of the folks who um, came to me talking last semester about Oh my gosh! I didn't realize just how bad rural mental health care can be. Mm -hmm. How bad the shortage yes. can right. be in many rural areas. And um, I was sharing with you some information about Montana, right. where there's a real, real scarcity of mental health resources, and some of that has to do with um, just how large of a state it is, right. and that the population is very spread out. Part of that has to do with massive budget cuts mm -hmm. to um, the state mental health system. And, uh, you know, they were this really heartbreaking, heartbreaking story in an article that I was reading about a, a young boy who needed therapy services in the aftermath of his mother um, dying by suicide. And the nearest therapist he could get to was 50 miles away. Hmm. And there was no way his father could transport him, particularly during traditional work hours, right, right to actually get those services. Um, so access, obviously, you know, hmm. a huge one. The other is just our technology is evolving. People are right. more comfortable with that. We have, you know, at least a generation, if not more, of people who have lived on their cell phones, mm -hmm. right, right, which... Right. Um, they're just more comfortable communicating right. in that way. And I think that that, that plays a role. Um, 
you know, in addition for therapists and likely for for clients as well, there's a convenience mm-hmm. aspect, even if it's not necessary for access. Is it easier to um, be able to have a therapy appointment at 8.30 in your living room right? <laughs> versus trying to take time off during the workday to do that? Um, and there's also a stigma issue. Mm-hmm. And so many therapists will talk about um, the idea that this might get people quote unquote, in the door, (laughs) who otherwise wouldn't, because they wouldn't literally walk through the door of a mental health center. Hmm. And do you think that the the ease of video chatting, Mm -hmm. so it's not really like telehealth, like on the telephone kind of thing, but rather Mm -hmm. like digital health is is more likely that we're Mm -hmm able to see our therapist and our therapist Mm -hmm. is able to see her client um, in a video sense to get a better understanding of what's going on in a a mental uh, illness crisis or something like that. Sure. And I think... I think when it comes to things like, I'm going to call it video streaming, and I know mm. that's probably not the most accurate, but that's right. That's what I'm going to call it, um, that that is probably the closest approximation we can have to teletherapy mm-hmm. and in-person therapy. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that people do therapy by email, mm-hmm. and they do therapy by telephone. Mm-hmm. And so there are other ways that folks are doing it that don't involve the face-to-face, and one of the, um, and even... The, the video is not face-to-face in the same way. So I was reading an article recently where it talked about um, the amount of training that therapists need to do this kind of approach mm-hmm. effectively. And that one of the simple and yet very important things is that when you're in a face-to-face session, you can take notes, mm-hmm. m- many therapists do, right? And you can do that without breaking the connection with your client and without them seeing that as terribly disruptive in many cases that you're still attending to them while mm-hmm. you're doing that. But if you're video screen to video screen mm-hmm. and you break eye contact with that client because that's all they have is that right. eye contact and you write that you know they describe as a best practice explaining that in advance to mm-hmm. clients and even remarking on it when you do it so that they don't feel that break in relationship at the mm-hmm. time that it happens. That so, seems like a question, so I... Yeah, I'm no. I, I'm, I'm thinking through a billion things, and one of them you're, you're kind of touching on a little bit, which is the role of training in all this. Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, I'm wondering to what degree clinicians are trained for this now, if mm-hmm. grad schools are, are, are incorporating this mm-hmm. into... I mean, this is not how I learned to do therapy, right? I learned to it's, do therapy, me and another person in a room, right? Mm-hmm. And, and sitting across from each other. And, and so just thinking about what a new... And this might not... Maybe to someone who's not been trained in therapy, this might not sound that different. But to me, it just sounds fundamentally different. It's like yes. taking everything that I know how to do and saying, no. No. Like, yeah, that's, we're going we're gonna to completely <laughs> do this differently. And, yeah. and as I read about it, it reminds me of thinking about online teaching mm-hmm. and making that transition. And the people who think that teaching an online course just means taking your materials and throwing them up on the internet, right? Right. <laughs> right. Where your best practices for facilitating uh, discussion in an online course could be vastly different than those best Mm -hmm. best practices within an in-person course, for example. Uh, And so it's learning um, entirely new pedagogical practices in some Mm -hmm. ways, or at least learning how to adjust them to achieve similar outcomes, Mm -hmm. right? 
And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I honestly can't answer the question as to what graduate schools are right. doing. I would suspect a couple of things. I would I would suspect with no evidence that graduate schools probably aren't doing a whole lot with it right. <laughs> because they have so much to do in terms of training. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we still are reading articles about how graduate schools can be behind the curve in terms of evidence-based practices right. and training graduate students in yep. those. And clearly that's going to be a higher priority than teletherapy. And I'm going to make a guess and maybe a judgment that they're probably not fully on board with mm-hmm. the idea yes. in principle, you yep. know, and so they're probably not doing a lot of mm-hmm. training around that in this, from the perspective of, mm-hmm. I don't really believe in it. Yeah. Um, that's just a guess, but I bet it's close for some places. Well, and I would guess too that they are relying a little bit on some of the companies that engage in this practice to provide the training. Interesting. So there are some, you know, relatively large companies out there that advertise different kinds of talk uh, teletherapy sorts of services. That um, I would imagine. I don't know, but I would imagine mm. they might have training possibilities for the people that they they hire i mean just as a person who's licensed in iowa i get unsolicited letters to work for some of those companies Uh, and you know so I, i think that that's one possibility i will say though that um I read just the abstract of an article from professional psych research Mm -hmm. and practice where they had interviewed or surveyed um between 100 and 200 therapists about teletherapy Mm -hmm. and their attitudes about it were relatively positive as an abstract sort of a thing like Hmm. oh access is good (laughs) you know all these sorts of things Um, and yet when you ask them about the degree to which they were engaged in it that didn't match Mm. necessarily and I mean some of the things that I mean and some of this gets a little bit into the weeds and so help me out here a little bit but some of the concerns that they raise were issues about um, across state practice and mm. licensure concerns, <laughs> yeah. HIPAA, right. and whether or not it would they would meet HIPAA sure. compliance, the um, amount of data security that's required. Right. So because it can't just be your typical old you know DSL right. <laughs> or you know that's you yep. need an extra layer of security, and even confidentiality wise. Some of the best practices that are talked about um, in the literature, even in the APA um, guidelines, are that you have to, as a therapist, then think about your own social media presence and also about what you do about your client's social media. So if you've got a client that you only know of online, is it ethical, and we're going to make the argument that it's not, (laughs) to search, to do like a Google search on your client, right? Right. Because then you have information about your client that they don't know that you have mm. and that they did not give you. Right. But to the extent that you have a social media presence, you also potentially compromise the confidentiality of your client mm-hmm. if your name is in their email or you know all these mm-hmm. sorts of things. And it's easy to find out that, oh, so-and-so is a psychologist. Hmm. But anyway, I... I think it also goes the opposite way, though, that there is so much information out there yeah. about all of us. How does a yeah. therapist yep. deal with that like the expectation mm-hmm. me as the client I have an expectation that my therapist mm-hmm. knows me and has read everything mm-hmm. like maybe you ask me as my yeah. therapist you ask me to keep a journal mm-hmm. and so I keep a journal and I email that journal right. to you and it's 400 pages <laughs> long and mm-hmm. and I don't understand why you 
don't know what I was thinking last Tuesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't you talking about that? That yeah. was a really big breakthrough. How are you supposed to deal with yeah. that? Mm-hmm. And I think psychologists have increasingly, even those who don't do what we would consider to be teletherapy, are having to, in their informed consent documents that are set yeah. out at the beginning of therapy, um, increasingly I'm seen in those documents because I like to share them in my counseling and psychotherapy class to give mm-hmm. students a sense of what these can look like. I'm more and more seeing social media policies and email policies where it actually spells out for clients that, you know, I don't... In- for example, I don't encourage you to email me because I can't guarantee the confidentiality mm-hmm. of email communication. If you do email me, right. you can't expect an answer within, you know what I mean? And if I'm a therapist and I'm assigning my client to journal, you know, chances are I'm going to be having a discussion with them about the amount, how to share it, how, yeah. to share it, how much I can reasonably... You know, so that they know that. Sure. And I, I remember, too, you know, oftentimes talking to clients and saying things like, you know, we may run into each other mm-hmm. in person, yes. and if that happens, here is how I choose to handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you, but mm-hmm. if you choose not to, I won't take it personally, whatever. And we'd have yeah. to have that little spiel. Mm-hmm. I imagine that now you you have to have mm-hmm. that with, like, what your social media yes. interactions would be like, you mm-hmm. know, and that, because it's not just do we want to be friends Mm -hmm. with each other on social media? It's also, what if our friends are friends? What if we come into contact that way, you know? (laughs) And, um, and all of this complicating a world that was already pretty complicated. Absolutely. Um, Most of my clinician friends who were in graduate school with me now have never created social media accounts. Mm -hmm. I think by and large for this reason is that they just, they didn't want to have to deal with this and social Mm -hmm. media wasn't important to them before. And so, so they just don't yeah. have it, um, but I. But that's obviously not true for mm-hmm. many therapists sure. out there. Yeah, so. and I know some who have social media accounts, but under a completely fictitious name yep. as well, and they have a fictitious location and a, you know, yep. all these sorts of things. But then they can still share their kids' pictures with right. a select group of people, or you know what yep. have you. Um, you know, it, it also. I would be inclined, and I've seen this on documents, but I would be inclined as a therapist to tell my clients now Mm -hmm. that um, as a matter of protection for their privacy and so that they are aware of what I know Mm -hmm. and don't know about them, that I will not, that ethically I will not search um, social media or do Google searches or other kinds of things for information about them, that I will be working only with the information that they provide to me (laughs) and or that I have a release of information to right. get because I think there's a sense of safety that that provides yeah. for clients and also a sense of safety it provides for the therapist in like, right. I'm not responsible for knowing all this. The, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so if you post on your blog that you are, you know, considering suicide, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have access to that information because I'm not out there searching for mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I'm curious about the, so you mentioned, I can't remember if this was off air before or on air after, but you mentioned uh, some stuff about the research being sparse, I think. What, what do we know? Like, does it work? What's... Well, so the research is by and large, what we have is by and large positive. Mm-hmm. The The part that I'm not as clear about <laughs> is when you, so I've been reading primarily reviews mm-hmm. of, of research. And so it'll say, well, you know, this meta-analysis found that, you know, teletherapy was equally effective for anxiety compared mm-hmm. to, you know, face-to-face. 
what you don't get within that was what was the sample size? What do they mean right. by anxiety? Right. right. And so how severe is this? <laughs> quite what a few type different is it? Right. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of nuance that is lost in that sentence. Right. Um, so I think it's definitely a promising area, and I think that's why mm-hmm. we're we're seeing so much work done on it. I mean, the American Psychiatric Association actually has. They have a document of best practices, but they also have several modules online on their website that psychiatrists can mm-hmm. can visit to educate themselves about various things, both legal and um, right. you know ethical and and medical. Um, the American Psychological Association worked with um, the Association of State and Provisional Psychology Boards and APIC, the internship mm-hmm. accrediting entity, to put together some guidelines for telepsychology. So it's something that I think we're taking seriously. And right. if there weren't some evidence of effectiveness, mm-hmm. we wouldn't right. be taking it as right. seriously as we are. Um, I think there is a lot of nuance. Um, I think I was saying um, before we came on air that things like psychological testing, that's also mm-hmm. something that can be really hard for people to access. Right. Um, but we're talking about typically psychological testing instruments that were normed and that mm-hmm. we have reliability and validity data on based on in-person administration. Hmm. So I can do an administration of it, right. live streaming, but are my data as good right and i don't until it's been yeah normed yeah mm-hmm. so i was thinking about because i'm a super nerd myself and i was thinking about the you're among the, friends. <laughs> the exactly. star trek yes. dr Bones. oh wow no okay you and are nerdy no oh, wow like, you're going old school <laughs> I'm going okay nerdy I, right I was waiting now. for the holographic doctor from voyager or something yeah, okay. I, that's where i was I, nope, no. Okay, nope. we're, farther, we're going farther back. Than, we're going original than Star Trek. Okay. So I'm, I'm like remembering that Bones, the Doctor, has this tricoder, this like uh, mm-hmm. this instrument sure. that he, you can pass in front of another human's body, yeah. and it can tell you uh, what is wrong. And I feel like uh, some, from some things that I've been reading about um, telehealth, like mm-hmm. physical health, that they they have these pods that you can go in. And it's basically like a, a tricoder. Like you, mm-hmm. it takes mm-hmm. your blood pressure. It can do like sometimes an fMRI. You hook up a heart monitor. Like it's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Is there a similar thing for things going on with your mental health? There will be. <laughs> so quite honestly, this is what I've been thinking, and mm-hmm. I think it ties into what you're saying. So if you'll give me a moment to digress mm-hmm. for a second. I was at a talk once, not for uh, on advising, okay. and this guy presented an app that is being used at this massive university, and I don't remember where. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's basically, it's not an advising app, but it's for a, are you having problems mm-hmm. with accessing the university app? Sure. And you fill out, you, you ask questions of this app. And so anything that comes up, it's basically the equivalent of what we hear, have here at UW-Green Bay of GBOSS, sure. um, right? It's the place you go for all your, all your questions. Mm-hmm. So I, don't, I can't find a gen ed that's open, right? Yeah. To there's a problem with my fan, financial aid. The thing that makes this spectacular is that it's largely AI. Mm-hmm. So it's the responses are auto-generated. Sure. But with a, I believe the way it worked, if my memory is, is correct, is that it was largely AI, but with a, um, like a, you could intervene if, if a question wasn't getting answered adequately, then mm-hmm. you, you could, someone would chime in and fix it and, and answer sure. it correctly. 
And I think it's fair to say, like, how long until teletherapy and mm-hmm. assessment are essentially just that? And that you, and, and my hunch is, it, this already either exists, versions of it exist, or are in the works. And you, you had mentioned off air some, some websites that mm-hmm. kind of, but where it's, you're getting something that is like fundamentally responsive. Sure. And so that when mm-hmm. you tell it how you're feeling, it asks therapy-like questions in mm-hmm. response. I was thinking about what you said with assessment, and don't get me wrong, I know that interpretive programs and things like that, sure. and those have been around for 20 years, but I yeah. know that those sorts of interpretive programs are flawed, mm-hmm. but I bet they're getting better, and I bet they're becoming yeah. increasingly yeah. effective at, and, and I think it's only a matter of time until the AI people turn their sights on this and say, mm-hmm. here's a problem we can solve with this technology. And I, I suspect that you're right. I mean, I, I think uh, that that is not far down the road if it doesn't already in some form exist. Mm-hmm. The piece that's a little bit different, I think, from what Georgina's talking about is that, you know, I, I often disappoint my students when I say, look, when it comes to things like depression or right. post-traumatic stress disorder, we can't take an x-ray. I can't mm-hmm. draw your blood right. and say, you know, and, right. and we right. might talk about, quote unquote, chemical imbalances, right. which a lot of neuroscientists would now say is a really antiquated way of talking Mm -hmm. about mental illness, in fact, (laughs) but that's neither here nor there. Um, But we don't have the equivalent of that. It is asking questions, right? right? It is getting those data points. And some of those vary, for example, by culture and gender. Mm -hmm. So symptomatic expression of depression is somewhat different in men than in women in many cases. It is somewhat different in Asian cultures than it is in European American cultures. Uh, And so you lose some of Mm -hmm. that, right? Which isn't to say that folks won't, you know, that it couldn't still be helpful. One of the things that is gonna be interesting is that, you know, one of the best practices that's recommended for engaging in any kind of teletherapy is that you know the local community that your client is based in and that you get at the beginning of therapy a family member or someone they're living mm-hmm. with that you have the local crisis number that sort of thing because what happens when you're mid-session and your client has said that they're suicidal and all of a sudden your right. connection goes right, right? you've right. got to have some way to respond to that mm-hmm. and so what happens with something like this do you have to sign a waiver that says I mean, because that you understand you're talking to a machine. machine? Yeah. Yeah. And that you're talking via your cell phone and that your cell phone may have your location. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Right? I mean, and I don't know. I'm not Mm -hmm. suggesting I do, but it it leads us down a whole lot of interesting paths. Because I'm thinking about, so, you know, I think it's a question of, so I, I have no doubt that the best AI will never be better than the best therapist. Mm hmm. But I bet it'll be better than the worst therapist. I bet it will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I bet it already is. Yes. <laughs> well. And, <laughs> and, and so part of me is, I mean, that's kind of what I'm yeah. thinking about. Like, will we be able to scan a person's brain with, mm-hmm. with Bones as decoder? No. But, but I wonder mm-hmm. how many questions we would have to get them to answer before we sure. had an accurate diagnosis. Yes. And how long until, I mean, I know plenty of therapists who aren't very good at, um, taking culture and gender into mm-hmm. oh absolutely um, you know but yep. but who wouldn't be able to do it better than a machine yes I, and so I find myself really thinking like this yeah. is and I this probably sounds like I'm advocating I'm not mm-hmm. I'm just saying I, yeah. I feel like this is probably the direction yeah. that this is going 
So I, I, I'm angry now that I did not look this up before mm-hmm. um, this. I was listening to the radio on the way to work. Um, yes, I still listen to the radio. Wow. <laughs> um, but I was listening to the radio on the way to work about a week ago, and they were talking about a study that came out on Siri and Alexa and a variety of those personal mm-hmm. assistants. Mm-hmm. And it was a study done by physicians looking at the quality of medical advice hmm. when these um you know, personal assistants are asked basic medical questions, right? I just cut myself and I'm bleeding. What do I do kind of a thing? And they were not good. So uh, let's say that the accuracy I know for one of them was about 8%. Okay, that's not great. There there was one, and that's why I'm really angry that I didn't look this up, because there was one that was just, it was sad, but it was funny in its sadness where, you know, you asked a question and instead it gave you the lyrics to some horrible song or something. You know what I mean? So um, so at any rate, uh, we we have some work to do. But then again, I don't think that, Siri is our best artificial intelligence when right. it comes to medical software, right? right? Or telehealth or, when, or teletherapy. And, so, And I also suspect that this is not a place that, that the, the people have turned their brains to yet. You know, exactly. that, that this yeah. hasn't been where people have directed that mm-hmm. attention. Yeah. But I think that once it's perfected for other things, mm-hmm. I don't actually think that this is that. I yeah. mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not trying to say that therapy isn't hard. Therapy is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. I just also think that it's the kind of thing that this technology could end up sure. working for. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And there, there are two things that I, I have found myself thinking a lot about that I think are worth considering for the, for the future. And one of those is, so a lot of the research talks about, and I can see this as being so helpful as a foot in the door, again, the metaphorical door, mm-hmm. um, that this approach is particularly good for people who deal with social anxiety yep. and other kinds of anxiety issues. And on the one hand, I think absolutely 100%. And if, if it's going to be too hard for those pers- those individuals to come in person, mm-hmm. yes. Um, but I think, Ryan, you probably also know as a therapist that in Exposure. Exposure. (laughs) Exposure is really important, right? Right. And that, um, boy, if you can't, if if you aren't able to get that foot Mm -hmm. in the door of a very safe space, which is what a therapist's office is designed to be, um, to then help you make that transition into other places that aren't as safe, wow, you know, I don't think you're going to get there by virtual therapy alone. And and that's just me and my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's not... um, No, I had the same, the exact same thought um, about some of the, when it comes to actually social anxiety sorts of things in general, that like part of it has to be like becoming comfortable um and that eventually therapy has to look different than that um Mm -hmm. for someone so yeah Yeah. the other quick piece is Mm -hmm. georgina mentioned um to me earlier today when we were talking about this is this an instance where the rich will get richer and Mm -hmm. the poor will still be without services Mm -hmm. and you know, when we look at things like the availability of high-speed internet in rural areas, yep. when we look at things like who has computers and cell phones and all the things that they would need to take advantage of something like this, mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily going to help us with some of the highest need populations right. um, mm-hmm. who could perhaps right. best benefit in some ways. This has been something, and what I'm about to say is kind of loosely related uh, somewhat loosely related, but I've been reading a lot of people lately making a plea for saying, you know, it's not just um, access and not just taking mental health seriously, quote unquote. It's also acknowledging that people have 
that has been priced out of a lot of yes. people that they yes. can't afford it. Yes. And yes. you know, and my hunch is that whatever we're talking about is still going to end up not just because of the all the things you mm-hmm. mentioned, which I agree with, but that it's it's also going to price itself out. So access has to be more than just. I, I know a guy, right? It's, yeah. it's <laughs> access has to be. There's I can, an app for yeah, that. Yeah. It, it has to be. I can afford this thing. Yes. Right. And yeah. Absolutely. Any final thoughts on this before we get into our rapid research review? I feel as though I've already just talked too much oh, because no. I have not been in the classroom enough. I've been teaching ah. online this semester. And so all of my stored up in class energy <laughs> yep. just got visited upon both of you as just no. unwilling victims. No, but, I love uh, it. This, this was, is no, great we stuff. Awesome, so. <laughs> yeah. This is great, great stuff. I, I'm really interested in it. This is, I mean, in, in so many ways, this has kind of been off my radar as far as where it, things are going and where mm-hmm. they could go. And so, yeah, this has been great. It's exciting. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Well, we're going to do our rapid research review. And if memory serves, you went first last time. but I, I don't did. Re- you did. So you go first this time. Okay. Sounds good. Um, so I wanted to get back to my research roots a little bit. So I took the approach of searching for a single word in PsycInfo today, anger. Uh, today. Yes. <laughs> yep. I did this morning. Uh, anger. Um and I, uh, I looked at the most recent article, and then the, the most recent I didn't like. So then I went with the second most recent article, um, which <laughs> is an article titled Racial, Ethnic, and Gender Disparities in Anger Management Therapy as a Probation Condition. It is from a 2020 article from Law and Human Behavior uh, by Cassandra A. Bailey and many colleagues. Too many for me to mention all of them. But uh, so um, they predicted, it's not really too many. I probably could read through all of them. But yeah, but we're just going to say at all and move on. Um, So they predicted that uh, African-Americans and Hispanic males would be sentenced to anger management therapy as a probation condition more often than white males and women. Yes. Um, Which, by the way, that is the opposite of what I thought was going to, they were going to predict when I first saw the headline, but I'll explain why in a second. So so to test it out, they reviewed sentences from an adult uh, probation department in southern Texas. They controlled for a bunch of stuff, including the offense, the judge, the county, all sorts of things like that. And they found that the odds of receiving anger management were almost twice as high in African-Americans over white men. They were 1.5 times higher for men over women. Wow. Yeah. So here's the thing. I think what I thought when I saw the headline is that it was going to be anger management instead. That's what I thought. Uh, Yes. It is not. It is anger management in addition to some sort of probation. And I think gotcha. it's, yes. And so, um, and the thing is, what is, what I discovered in reading the article um, is that, uh, which is why you read the article instead of uh, <laughs> just, just the headline. Good job, Ryan. Thank you. Um, that it's an additional sentence on top of their other probationary requirements. The offender has to pay for it. Um, and so essentially what this meant is that being non-white, uh, being a non-white male had additional consequences above and beyond the consequences for others. Um, the other thing that is kind of a bummer here, and in this part I knew before I read the article, is that the, the effectiveness of those mandatory treatment programs is pretty, isn't great. It's inconclusive as described. Sometimes we find some studies that say it works. Sometimes we find that they don't. Um, And so ultimately there's this, this consequence that has no benefit or or maybe no benefit 
uh, to, to the individual that costs more. So it's really this just additional treatment. Um, but what one of their, their reasons why they, they speculate is that uh, being an ethnic minority often ha- is viewed by non-minorities as angry or are often viewed as angry or hostile. And so that perception mm. is made and therefore. Wow. I wonder if this is a, an area for telehealth. Yeah. Like you could <laughs> tele-anger anger management? You anger management therapy online, yeah. Right. My hunch is that what we need more than anything are judges who uh, sort of better understand yeah. the, the population that well, we're that with. there's that, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm thinking some online implicit bias training, perhaps, yeah. although the effectiveness of both that and the online anger management <laughs> therapy might actually yes. be in question so, from the research. But Yeah. So anyways, it, it just emerged essentially as another really disappointing finding about the treatment of mm-hmm. non-whites in America. It's not disappointing. It sets a challenge yeah. that we must do better. Yeah, yes. that is certainly true. That is so, just yeah. all, I, all I can say about that. <laughs> Very good. So that's my rapid research. Report. All right. So you already you already have the preview that yes. that mine is a TED Talk sensation. So My competition. Uh, <laughs> here you go. Here's your competition. So I have a friend on Facebook who is training to do the an Ironman. Ooh, awesome. And so so she posts about her training journey, and um, she always uses the hashtag gritty. Oh. Like hashtag gritty. And, and so it's this concept of grit mm-hmm. and um, stick-to-itiveness and um, persevering mm-hmm. through a, a grueling training to do an Ironman. And so I, uh, I haven't read a whole lot about the, the concept of grit, and so I accessed uh, Angela Duckworth, who is the... TED Talk sensation um, from her 2013 TED Talk about this concept. She is a genuine sensation, by the way. She is. Yes. (laughs) I am not going to compete with this person. I've already lost. (laughs) But I was interested um, to to read. She's, uh, there's been a lot of skepticism about this concept of grit and that perhaps it maybe isn't as awesome in promoting success uh, Mm -hmm. as she once thought in 2007 when she first put it Mm -hmm. out there. Uh, But she just published an article in 2019 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said that we need to consider grit and she did this uh, in a population of West Point cadets, which mm-hmm. is where a lot of her previous research had actually been. So 11,258 cadets, so not wow. a small sample size. That's pretty big, yeah. Um, and measuring things like physical health and cognitive ability, but also this concept of grit. And she found that grit, although not strongly predicting academic outcomes like grades, which Hmm. has always been the way that we measure Mm -hmm. success, and not so so important in predicting that, but that grit above other things like cognitive ability uh, was a um, prognosis. Predictor? Pro- predictor, prognostic. Is that a Prognosticator? Word? I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I, a predictor is a predictor. We look like at that. me like getting out of control yeah. here. <laughs> wow. It was a predictor of completion of the training of the of oh, these cadets okay. and their graduation. Interesting. And so if we measure yeah. success 
mm-hmm. in a stick to kind of way, mm-hmm. then grit plays an important part right. in sure. actually completing training, graduating, and things mm-hmm. like that, although it may not be such a strong predictor as cognitive ability in grades. Interesting. I like well, that's it. that's great. I love it when people follow up on their stuff, too. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially if they're willing to kind of challenge their own uh, earlier ideas, yeah. which is great. So. so that's like 12 years in the, in the yeah. making from the first article yeah. to now. That's pretty cool. You know, I've, and I've actually been, I think, more on the fence than most about the concept of grit. There's been some for, actually, in some ways for political reasons, and it always felt a little like, pull yourself up by your bootstrapsy, you know, that like, hey, you gotta, you gotta make it work. I know it's hard for you, and maybe it's harder for you, but you still have to work hard, and you can get there. And so it's always, I've always worried about that, that kind of piece underlying, or maybe, maybe that's not even the, uh, it it being essentially co-opted by people. Um, And so I've always worried about that. Um, But I, but that said, like, I've always also felt like, you know, as a parent, it's important. I want my kids to work hard, you know, right. um, and, that, and, and be willing to kind of fight through things and things like that. So I've been sort of intrigued by it as a, like how to, de- how to help develop it in people um, while also acknowledging that like, oh, I don't, I hope we don't, I hope we don't like replace other important things. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I think that that was her argument that it has its place. Mm-hmm in the success of humans right um, sure and that we shouldn't discount it Mm -hmm. just because it doesn't predict grades yep and so i think about my friend training for this this iron man and i think to myself like she needs grit right Mm -hmm. to complete this and she's Mm -hmm. more likely if she's gritty uh, more likely to complete it but it's not going to make her time faster right interesting yes that is a nice way of looking at it I've also read some stuff on kind of the consequences of grit that, that like sometimes, and I would not want to share this with your friend, um, but that <laughs> one of the thing, one thing that happens for some people is that they, like there is actually a time to quit and mm-hmm. that sometimes yeah, people sure. don't know that. And, yeah. sure. uh, you know, and um, so, you know, someone with chronic injuries, for example, and, yes. and I think about this all the time because I have one son who, um, he will play video games to the point that he's actually sitting there crying because he can't beat a level. <laughs> and I think to myself, like, this is actually an example of too much grit. Like, it was, <laughs> I think you need to take a break. You need to <laughs> work. Yeah. So very well, nice. And yeah. I think, Brian, what you get at, too, is, is the – because I love that. I love the idea of what grades can – or what can predict grades versus what can predict completion and mm-hmm. what are we really going for here and yeah, all, mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. Um, but I think the point that you get at too is important that no matter how much grit you have, grit is not going to overcome very real structural obstacles. barriers, yes. right? And so Absolutely. you could have as much grit as you want mm-hmm. as the African-American men in, in the study that you right. referenced, and they're not going, they've got other barriers that are influencing their ability to make it through the criminal justice system right. in an ineffective way and yep. come out of this. Yep. That was exactly what I was trying to say, but you said it way better. Um, and that's that's what I mean about people co-op. My worry is always people sort of co-oping this and say, well, the difference between person A and person B mm-hmm. is that person B didn't have grit. It's yeah. like, well, no, person B had obstacles that person A didn't have. Yeah. And right. 
Um, and I know that's not the intent of no, the, the person no, 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 who, who authored this, no. but it's it, it's felt like the intent of people who've reviewed it and talked about it. And, yes. and that's always a thing that stresses me out. And I, I like that she followed up. Yeah, me too. Oh, 100%. Say, absolutely yeah. not. Let's, yeah. let's look at it this way, and that's yep. cool. Very, very good. So awesome. Any closing thoughts before we finish this up? Nope. No. I, I think... The word sensation is the word of the day. And (laughs) so I'm going to try and use it three more times today. That's my, that's my thought of the day. Very good. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) I like it. Sensational. I'm happy to hear it. There you go. All right. So just a reminder, if you like psychology and stuff, please go and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find the show. Second. Go find us on Facebook and Twitter, again, at Psych and Stuff. That's where you can get involved in the conversation, ask questions, even request episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at Rye C. Mart. That's R-Y-C-M-A-R-T-G, your Twiddle handle. Or twiddle? Georgina. <laughs> your Twiddle handle. <laughs> I am Georgina W.D. That's G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. And Chris, I don't believe you're on Twitter. You know, I, I am, but it's a secret. Oh, wow. No, I, 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 you know, I activated a Twitter account that has probably long since been deactivated, probably okay. about five years ago. Okay. And so, yeah, I may be out there. Um, Definitely as... not a Twitter sensation. <laughs> yeah. Not a Twitter sensation. We don't know. It may be. It's been, it's been run by artificial intelligence. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Chris. Uh, Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is me, Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and the engineer for today's show is Sarah Miller. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Fleece. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Chris Vespia. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out our past episodes and all of our episodes of our shows. That sounded weird. <laughs> I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungis. Keep being amazing. Keep being amazing.